You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. The leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Kurt Ludhart. Kurt is the co-founder and CEO of The Prosper Group one of the top five agencies globally in digital marketing, specializing in reaching voters in local, national, and international corporate, nonprofit, and political campaigns. He's a serial entrepreneur with his various fingers in real estate, in data companies, in online retail, and most recently, yes, a community ice cream parlor. And he's also the proud father of a two and a half year old daughter and a 10 month old son. So he has truckloads of free time to be here talking with me on this podcast. Kurt, welcome to the show. (laughs) It's great to be here, Laura. And yes, I'm most excited about the new ice cream parlor. It's a week old, or it's a week since I bought it, 70 years old as a parlor. I grew up near it, about two miles away, went there after every Little League game, went there frequently on Saturday nights during the town band concert. So it has a special place in my heart, my hometown of New Washington, Ohio. Oh, I love it. Now here, of course, the most important question, actually, it's a two-parter, so don't get tripped up on this one. I know it's a lot of pressure, but first, what is the most popular flavor? (laughs) Well, we're about to find out. Mm. Owners tell me it's strawberry milkshakes is what they sell the most of. But we'll find out. We will reopen again, hopefully around St. Patty's Day. Nice. So it's going to be a lot of green milkshakes at that point. Yeah, we can try that as a special that went through my mind. We'll see. I'll send you an address where you can send my uh, my cut for the inspiration and the ideas (laughs) there. And uh, the more important question, of course, is what is your favorite flavor? Well, I think I'm probably with most Americans in that I love cookies and cream. Mm. That's my thing. Had a little cookies and cream milkshake for lunch today. <laughs> so you're on a health kick, I see. That's Yes, <laughs> yes, that's for sure. That sounds delicious, I have to admit. All right, well, now you've given us a little bit about that background, but give us the more focused uh, answer here. What's your 30-second elevator pitch? Well, I'll tell you, my company, the Prosser Group, we've been around for nearly 17 years now. And what we're really passionate about is impacting voters and people, particularly as it pertains to public policy and public affairs. You know, most of our customers are either nonprofits or corporations or political candidates trying to influence the way people think, really translating their passion mostly. Most of them are passionate about one thing or the other. Maybe it's roads and infrastructure, perhaps it's education or medical research. And we're here to to help translate that and get other people involved, impact their thinking and their actions with the public. Yes, getting people to call their representatives to actually weigh in on something instead of just complaining that what they wanted to happen never happened. It's uh, yeah. being a little more proactive is more effective. I'd yeah, think. we're wanting to engage the public and to take action on something. And so, yes, it could be calling their representatives. It could be showing up to volunteer an event. could be even writing a check to support some of these causes. And that's what we've been doing for 17 years. It's awfully impactful and rewarding and something we're proud to be doing. 
I think engagement is one of the most perennially hot topics. And it just seems like more and more as things go online, the notion of engagement, how do you maximize engagement, stakeholder engagement, client engagement, employee engagement, uh, and in these kind of cyclical issues as well, I would imagine it's just as important, if not more so. Absolutely. And people knowing that they need to engage with folks online is all the more important. And everyone's attention span is very short. There's a lot of things vying for their attention. And so slipping in something that might feel selfless or not really on their agenda can be really tough. This isn't about making more money in my career. This isn't about bettering my stature in life. I, I'm trying to ask somebody to say, would you be willing to work, write a check to this nonprofit or mm. call your legislator and ask him to support more funding for education or roads or, or whatever the issue is? So it's a, there's a lot of competition for that engagement, too. Yes, I, I think you hit the nail on the head that the average attention span is somewhere between like a gnat and a gerbil <laughs> nowadays, especially when the online space Absolutely. is the medium. What do you find has been the best tactic that has been really sticky to help people focus online? What what keeps people's eyeballs or ears focused for more than three seconds? Anything in particular? Well, it's long since we got people to read much. Mm. And so it's all about video. And getting very quickly to the point in a video, something pretty attention grabbing right at the outset is so essential. And maybe a good photo gets the same thing done, but it's so perhaps the answer is it's got to be very visual. Yes. To capture that attention. Yeah, something that's going to maintain their visual attention. And it, tell me, I heard a stat a little while ago, and I'm sure this is probably only higher now, but I had read that 81% of all online video was watched on mute. So you can have the video, but having subtitles is really essential if you want people to stick around. Is that accurate? Does that number sound, or did I just pull that out of my ear? No, that's very, I don't know if it's 81% or not, but the vast majority, I mean, the dirty little secret is we're all scrolling through YouTube at work and Facebook. So we, we all have it on mute and we're supposed to be listening to a conversation on Zoom. And so it's, you're absolutely right. Having some subtitles are so essential because people may not be listening to the audio. All right, everybody. So note that if you are in the car, pull over. If you are uh, you know, eating your lunch, put the sandwich down for a minute and pick up the pen because note you need to, it's not just my understanding this. You've heard it from the expert here. Subtitles. It's not just enough to have the video. Yes, video is better than not video, but video with subtitles is going to yes. exponentially. And be careful to rely on the auto-generated subtitles, by the way of your digital platform. Some will create them. Facebook will create subtitles for you. And if you rely on that, make sure you're reviewing it and editing it because it can create some embarrassing mistakes. Take it from firsthand. <laughs> Secondhand, I've looked at some of my own videos. Oh my gosh, seeing what people, whether it's LinkedIn's or somebody else's, like they, they put up the auto-generated subtitles and captions and I'm going, when did I say that? Oh, that's that's not what I know. Wait, how? Yeah, so it can be really, and sometimes it's just like, that's a stupid thing to say. What is that? Oh, and then you realize, oh, it's not the words. And sometimes it really is a lot more uh, meaningful. And they put periods in weird places, like they start and end sentences randomly. And you're going, this doesn't even sound like English when you read it the way it was written out. So yes, proofread, proofread, proofread. And that's not just the former English teacher in me coming back to life at this point. Trust us both. 
proofread. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we could almost end the podcast here. That's like awesome content for people to take and to really maximize their impact online. But let's go a little bit deeper. I'm going to push my luck because I'm going to bet out there that if you got that much value out of the first five minutes, the next few are going to be even better. So who's the toughest audience that you ever had to get through to? Well, some of our clients are politicians. Mm-hmm. And politicians can be tough because we need to understand who all is in the decision-making tree, mm-hmm. particularly if they've never been in office before. Okay, There's often what we like to call a kitchen cabinet mm-hmm. on a political campaign. And maybe it's the candidate, the candidate's spouse, the campaign manager who's on staff, but it could also be a campaign chairman or a best friend. Yeah, I was thinking as I'm talking about an example of a member of Congress I was doing some work for where we got, sorry, my wife is printing something on the printer without <laughs> Welcome warning. to the uh, the world of today. You know what? It is part of the human condition in the post-whatever yes. world. So uh, continue. So you've got the yes. client. So we had this uh, member of Congress who who we were doing some work for, particularly developing a website for his office. And we got months into the project without asking at any point who needs to weigh in on this other than his chief of staff, which would have been his sort of Mm -hmm. head person, only to find out months into it that there were two or three other people not in the org chart, specifically his spouse, that were really part of the decision-making and hadn't been consulted. So we lost months of productivity. And I find this is very common for politicians, but I suspect pretty common across the board, being clear on who needs to weigh in. I think that that is something that for any of us who are either our own business owners, anyone who's in a sales role, anybody who's in a development role, we think we found the person who is the ultimate decision maker, especially if they're the ones who will personally be receiving the product or service or engaging one way or another. And boy, it is amazing if you don't just poke two or three extra times sometimes to be, are you sure there's nobody else that we need to have in on this? I mean, there's when I, a lot of times guests who here on the show when they're, uh, if they're in a lead role for a really big organization, I mean, a couple of months ago, we had someone from the CIA on. There's a lot of, of hoops of approval that we need to jump through, make sure this person checked off and that person signed off and this person approved. And it is, you know, there's that adage, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. It may be easier to ask for, but it's not easier to get. Absolutely. Absolutely. And those things, those mistakes like that one, you know, cost a lot of labor. And we had to essentially start back over again. So it may sound like a subtle thing, but we were months into a project and, you know, hundreds of hours of labor all lost because I didn't think to really press on who all needed to be part of this process. That would be frustrating, having to start all over because you forgot to ask the one question. I'm curious, once that person's vote was cast, so to speak, or once they they were fully looped in, was the ultimate decision that they came to similar to what you had originally come to in the end, or was it utterly different? No, it was a completely different opinion of what the product should look like, what the color scheme. It was a it was like, hey, we built half the house. We're putting the roof on. 
Now we had to tear it all down and start all over again. So it's really costly and frustrating, by the way, for our client. Sure. Unintentionally, we didn't intend to move forward without the proper approval. They didn't intend to hold back who that was. So it's one of those typical communication errors in our world where nobody really had a bad intent, but the right questions weren't asked. And Right. Right. You know, months were lost. And it sounds like neither one of you realized that there was somebody else. They thought that they would have the final say in their own campaign, only to find out, no, you're the face, you're the candidate, but no, you don't get to make the final decision on these kinds of things. I mean, that's got to be humbling, <laughs> really, in a lot of ways, because it's your face, it's your name. And to feel like, nope, somebody else is going to have a lot more sway in some of these, at least stylistic details, that must that must be challenging. Yeah. And I think to some extent, like in this case, our clients are really looking for third-party opinions mm. and get in the habit of asking about them. But we have to clarify who those people are going to be early because they may not even know that this is coming. And they think perhaps without full knowledge that it doesn't really matter if feedback doesn't come until much later in the process. And so we've gotten better. I've gotten better in saying, I need feedback at this point and I need this clarity at this time so we can move forward to step two, mm. right? And that's been, we learned our lesson from that. I learned my lesson and able to get a lot better. Yes, that is a, uh, a challenge, I would say, that we've all learned the hard way. And if we're smart, we at least only have to learn it once. Check in. Double. Yes. Who else needs approval? Are you sure no one else needs to approve this? Let's just double check, <laughs> measure twice, cut once. Yes, absolutely. And you know what? I think this is a really good time to uh, levy a different kind of a challenge to everybody else. This is the listener 24-hour influence challenge. And this is a chance, Kurt, for you to talk directly to our listeners and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? But the goal of having more influence, of course. I think what I would encourage folks is to remove qualifiers, particularly as you're trying to communicate something to third parties. Qualifiers mean things to me like probably, maybe, I suppose. These kind of words when you're when I'm trying to communicate something, communicate the opposite of what I'm trying to say. Mm. I think I want to probably do this. <laughs> probably tells them my mind's not made up and I might not really want that. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's what I call telegraphing uncertainty and those kinds of words, the probably or I think it's a kind of a hedging is also another phrase that is in the, in the technical space, but it's really just diminishes our authority and our confidence. Because if we're saying, well, I think this is the case or I might want to do this or perhaps we could. It's one thing if you are actively gently seeking input and consensus, but in the wrong space or if it just is a habit to the point where it's ultimately become a filler. It's your version of, you know, or um, or like you hedge with the, the well, maybe, I mean, we could kind of perhaps try something like, yeah, it just says more and more, I'm not totally confident in what I'm saying, and I don't think you're going to agree with me, and I'm afraid I'm going to come across the wrong way. So you've ultimately ripped the rug out from under yourself. If it's you know, one or two here and there, timed well is different. 
But when it becomes filler-like in its frequency, utterly destructive. So continue on with that. I love it. I'm, I'm stealing your, your whole influence challenge here, but continue. <laughs> I do it because to me, it makes me feel less autocratic or like I'm giving an order. Yep. And so it, to me, it feels like a really nice way to communicate something. But to the listener, generally, it communicates that I haven't really made up my mind, or maybe it's just a gentle suggestion. Probably I want to do it, but I really haven't really made up my mind yet. So check in with me later. So eliminating those qualifiers is a great, easy thing we can all do 24 hours, get rid of that habit. I think you'll find, like me, that people have more clarity to what you're asking. Yes. Yes. And it's something that you could easily identify if you just take your phone and do an audio recording of the next time you're on a Zoom with somebody, just record your part of it for 10 minutes or something and listen to see how many times did you use those kinds of hedging, qualifier, minimizers, et cetera, because you might surprise yourself to find out which ones you actually use relative to which ones you think you use and how often. So uh, definitely great exercise. Record, listen, and then get rid of the unnecessary ones for sure. Absolutely. Terrific. Well, now, Kurt, what's an important lesson that you learned when you went from being an individual contributor to leading your first team? I have a tendency to think out loud. I like to entertain concepts, ideas, gather people's reactions to it. And in the wrong context, it communicated to people that perhaps a decision I made wasn't really certain. Same thing as these qualifiers we've talked about. Even recently, I fell into this trap when I was developing a new compensation plan for a team that works for me. And we were trying something new. I was trying something that we hadn't done in the past. And it wasn't perfect from the beginning. So I would often collect some feedback from people. I would ask them what they thought. I would mention some alternatives or adjustments that I was thinking of making. And what the net effect of that was, was everyone thought that the comp structure wasn't really settled, that anything could change. And it affected how they behaved in work because they didn't know if, particularly because this was a commission structure for a sales team, they didn't know what they were going to make off of an individual sale or how each action was affecting their compensation. And it was because I was thinking out loud in part. And it's a lesson I learned early, but have to relearn every once in a while. In part because my motivation often is pure. I feel like I'm incorporating their thinking. And so I, I'll come at it feeling like there's some kind of idealistic motivation there when it's best in those situations to keep my mouth shut and be very clear as exactly what's happening. This is the plan as it stands. Nothing's going to change until some other date, something that's clear so that people can move forward profitably. And in this case, my thinking out loud just counteracted the effectiveness of what we we're trying to do. I can see where that would be confusing, but I'm saying that as somebody who is equally guilty as not charged, but as charging oneself with the thinking out loud and seeking the sounding board. I, I like bouncing ideas off of people and getting their yes or their no, but, and just sort of seeing where the iterative conversation goes. I always feel like we, you come up with something stronger in the end, but not everyone works that way. And it's yeah. 
Well, there's the right people to get those ideas from and perhaps in the right context. But if you're like me in that situation and you're just kind of throwing it a lot of different directions, it's not going to get the result that you want. Yes. Having that focus and being clear on what's instruction versus what is active brainstorming and what kind of input is expected and what results we're looking to get out of that conversation, I think, is a great way to really level set from the beginning and set manage expectations. Then what about an approach that you have used to address an accountability issue with somebody on your team? As someone who would say that I hate conflict, mm-hmm. accountability has this ring to me of conflict when I think about sure. it. Holding someone accountable means that I'm going to have to confront them and that confrontation could lead to hard feelings and they may not like me. And in my mind, there's this tremendous fear about it. And what I've learned over time is that the situation gets worse, not better, the longer I procrastinate on a conversation about accountability. And if I procrastinate on it, that's generally noticed by other people who work for me, who then draw their own conclusions about it. So if I, if I fail to deal with some accountability, then I I tend to make it worse and other employees think, well, if he's not holding that person accountable, then maybe I don't have to do my job either. So there's a few things I've learned to take the pressure off myself, things that I, I will say in a conversation that, that can get to a, what often ends up to be a much more, much less confrontational result. I like to ask people first, kind of tell me about this. Tell me what's going on. What I have found over time is that sometimes people are having some struggles with the tasks they've been given for reasons that are both personal and professional. And that gives me an opportunity to help solve a problem. And that's more edifying to me. But also, I've liked the words, this isn't workable for me. Mm. That phrase I have found, at least for me, feels less confrontational. Like I've assigned you this thing and you haven't done it feels really confrontational, but the situation which you're running, you know, 20 days behind on these jobs, that's just not workable for me. That phrase really, for some reason, gives me a feeling like I'm not coming down on somebody. And that's a a been really valuable tool. Non-confrontational accountability phrases. So again, if (laughs) anybody who has got still has that pen in their hand from those earlier conversations that we had, Yeah, this is another one where you need to pull the car over one more time, write them down, because to find that magic balancing act between having the accountability discussions, but doing it in a way that does not come across as confrontational, there's some good power in there. So I would highly encourage you to hit rewind for the last 60 seconds or so and listen to this part of the conversation a second and possibly a third time. Get those down. They're super powerful uh, things to share. Now, what about in the hybrid space, because this is something that many people are not still not quite used to. Now, you are a digital marketing agency, so one would guess, or at least one of your many entrepreneurial or business talents is in that space. So the virtual space is home, but at the same time, you still have a team to run. So what is one of the biggest challenges or concerns or pet peeves of being in that remote workplace? And what's a solution? Yeah, so we did go 100% remote after COVID. We had to go remote during COVID. 
And then we were able to adapt and all work remote and our employees really wanted to stay remote. But it really relies on a couple of key things that we do regularly. First is that we have put a greater emphasis on every person supervisor scheduling regularly what we call one-on-ones every two, maybe three weeks at the most and be religious about it. Don't cancel it and use that as a check-in, not just about how things are going at work, but to ask some probing questions about how things are going with their coworkers, how they're feeling in general. Oftentimes, employees will tell you about things that are happening at home, which we saw an increase of when we went all remote, particularly when COVID hit everybody was together with their entire family all day. That can put a lot of pressure on a marriage, a relationship. So those one-on-ones were important. In fact, during the year of COVID, right after, things were pretty stressful for our company. And so myself and some of our other leadership, we would sometimes cancel those one-on-ones. So we would go a month and a half. And if there wasn't a thing that required you to be in communication with that employee directly, they weren't getting that check-in. And that I saw immediately some consequences of. So that was one is the one-on-ones are essential. Like what, actually? I want to just back up on that. When when you realized that the two to three week interval between one-on-ones was starting to slide, it was becoming more like four to six, the kind of month, month and a half going by. What consequences did you notice? What was changing? So I could think of one employee had a particularly tense conversation with their supervisor. And it was incidental, really. Just uh, didn't happen at a one-on-one, but just happened. And what I find employees do is they might get upset about something. Maybe they'll talk to a spouse about it or a coworker, but unless there's a set time in which to bring it up with their supervisor, they just kind of think, well, we'll talk about it next week. But if you don't have those check-ins regularly, then their imaginations tend to Mm. run wild. So with this particular employee, she had had a, kind of negative interaction with her supervisor and then convinced herself that her supervisor didn't think highly of her work product. And by six weeks, she was already applying for other work. All of that was in her head in the sense that her supervisor thought poorly of her. In fact, everyone in the company thought very highly of her work product. But because there wasn't a check-in, there was no point to sort of put an end to that kind of snowballing effect that was happening. So those check-ins are so important because otherwise things just kind of get, I think, swept under the rug. Sure. And there's no venue in which to bring up something in conversation. And it's also important to ask specific questions. I train every supervisor that you will have an experience where you've been doing your one-on-ones with your employees every two weeks and you have one that for the last three meetings has talked about how much they love working here and they'll never leave. And then they'll submit their two weeks notice. And you'll think, how'd that happen? Well, if you don't ask them the question, they're not going to answer it. Most, many people won't offer up any kind of dissatisfaction at work without you asking them to, because they're afraid that if you tell their, if I tell my supervisor, I'm, I'm a little unhappy, maybe I want more pay, maybe I, I don't like a particular coworker, then they're going to punish me for it. And so you have to ask questions. I ask questions like, what would it take for you to leave? Or, you know, what coworker is giving you the most trouble? Very direct question. What should I start doing or stop doing? Those things tend to elicit better, more productive feedback. And that's essential 
in an all remote environment because we're not running into people by the water cooler and we're not seeing them when they come in late once a week or they start coming in late more frequently, which leads me to the other thing we've invested in, which is more training, not just to be more effective in their job, but more training on mindset, mentality, and some things that our employees perceive as more personal than professional. And some of them, when we first started doing this, I think felt a little like they didn't understand why we're doing an hour-long session on maintaining mindset and having a good state. But over time, many of them have gotten, have related to us, have gotten a tremendous amount of value out of it. I couldn't shove it down their throats. You know, I couldn't push too much in asking about their personal lives. But by making this available to them, they've been able to kind of interact with people who, um, you know, who can talk about things that they, they're dealing with back at home. I want to just go back to the issue of how do you ask those questions to get some of those to understand what's going on behind the scene? I'm not trying to pry. I'm not asking you to tell me personal information that's otherwise none of my business. But I also am trying to be aware of if there's something you need help with. Are you struggling with something? Are you are you having genuine? Do you need help? Do you need support? To your point, if I don't ask you may be afraid to tell me, you may want me to tell you. So where's that line between not wanting to cross any, you know, HR ethics, whatever boundaries, not get myself in trouble, but also open the door and find out if my people really do need help somehow. How do I do that in a way that is safe? What are some of the questions that you ask? I think at the very base level, employees have to feel at the beginning that before you even have that conversation, that there's a culture that you care about them. We've done a pretty good job at our company communicating that we care about individuals, the staff and the company know it. So that really helps when you go into those conversations because you've set sort of a culture that people can be more honest and they don't feel threatened or that we're really quick to dump people who create inconvenient situations. Mm. But that's why these questions like what has to happen, that's a good phrase we use. What has to happen for you to want to be here for two more years? What has to happen for us to get the most out of you? Those kinds of things are good for kind of understanding how they're feeling about work. Over time, I've become less scared of prying a little bit. And I generally like to use an example, you know, I'll say, because it's true. You know, I know that everybody's working from home and I know you're married and maybe your spouse is working from home. How's that working out for you? Mm. <laughs> and, and other people telling me they're having challenges. Are you having challenges? I think when I use that sort of third party story, that it makes people feel more comfortable. I'm not the only one that's dealing with this. And so inviting them to talk about that by sharing sort of a third party thing has been very valuable too. Yes. All right. And I want a 30 second answer to my last question here, which is that Peter Drucker is known for his famous saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast. What's one communication pattern that's had a big cultural impact, whether positive or negative on a team that you've led? About eight or nine years ago, we developed we decided to be more, much more transparent 
about things going on at the company. We're very transparent about company finances. We make sure we announce what's going on when people are hired or fired. And the reason we adopted that was because we learned that in the absence of an explanation, people's imaginations were always worse than the reality. So we might be previously scared to share something that might not be good news, but at least they knew the truth and it wasn't worse in their minds than reality. And I think that's been good for us during COVID when things were pretty tight. We were very transparent about what's going on. We got some of the best reviews of our leadership that year ever, despite the fact that you know we had to lay a couple of people off and, and cut some other expenses. Yes, I'm, I'm hearing a theme about the transparency and not letting people's, the importance of not letting things fester. I think that's yeah. what it is between being the transparent and making sure that the one-on-ones don't stretch from two to six weeks in intervals in between them and how to make sure you're engaging with your that you're asking questions to open the door to having employees share with you what's going on, because if not, and they sit by themselves and they stew on something that's bothering them, uh, it's not healthy for them or for you or for the organization. So I'm hearing a pretty major theme about not letting things fester, making sure that things get brought up actively to the surface so they can be dealt with. Yeah, that's probably a good life principle, too, Amen. that sometimes it's just better to get things out there. And they're generally not as bad as we think they are. (laughs) You are correct. And on that note, Kurt, thank you so much for joining me today. How can people learn more about you and the Prosper Group? Well, you can definitely check us out on our website, which is prospergroupcorp.com. Excellent. And so thank you again. This has been really great. And I know people have been taking notes furiously as they go. We've dropped lots of nuggets today. (laughs) Glad to hear it. Hope so. And to everybody else out there, as always, thank you for tuning in. Make sure, of course, to subscribe so that you never miss an episode moving forward. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice. We can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The host, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.